Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. We take only the most dangerous and damaged patients, ones no other hospital can manage. These are all violent defenders, right? They've hurt people, murdered them in some cases. In almost all cases, yes. We've tried to provide them with a measure of calm. Personally, Doctor, I'd have to say screw their sense of calm. So this prisoner escapes in the last 24 hours. We don't know how she got out of her room. It's as if she evaporated straight through the walls. We haven't heard the truth once yet, but no one will talk. It's like they're scared of something. It's all down, all the lines, even radio. Whatever the hell's going on here, it's bad. We need to ask you some questions, okay? Do you know what fear does to the mind? Corrodes it, rusts it. This is a game. You're a random maze. Who did this to you? Going somewhere? I've built something valuable here. I'm not going to give up without a fight. What if while you were looking into them, they were looking into you? Now they have us both here now. Let me see your face. Let me see your damn face now! Don't move somebody! Wouldn't you agree? When you see a monster, you must stop it. Those were scenes where Martin Scorsese's gothic thriller, Shutter Island, a page-to-screen adaptation among several penned by writer Dennis Lehane, who is our guest today on the show, talking about his latest novel, revisiting the violent Boston racist reaction to school busing back in the 1970s, experienced traumatically by Lehane himself as a nine-year-old in Small Mercies. He'll also discuss his reaction to the current Hollywood writer's strike as, quote, what the studios are willing to put very earnest and talented and needy rank-and-file writers through who actually need to put food on their table and its nickels and dimes to these studios ruining lives over it. Lehane shares thoughts as well about the distinctive approaches to adapting his novels to the screen, Clint Eastwood directing Mystic River, and Scorsese's vision for Shutter Island. First, a reading from Small Mercies recounting the confused reaction of Irish working-class protagonist Mary Pat to what's going down all around her back then. Small Mercies, a novel by Dennis Lehane. Performed by Robin Miles. For Chisa. To cut oneself entirely from one's kind is impossible. To live in a desert, one must be a saint. Joseph Conrad, Under Western Eyes. Historical note. On June 21, 1974, U.S. District Court Judge W. Arthur Garrity, Jr. ruled in Morgan v. Hannigan that the Boston School Committee had systematically disadvantaged black schoolchildren in the public school system. The only remedy, the judge concluded, was to begin busing students between predominantly white and predominantly black neighborhoods to desegregate the city's public high schools. The school in the neighborhood with the largest African-American population was Roxbury High School. The school in the neighborhood with the largest white population was South Boston High School. It was decided that these two schools would switch a significant portion of their student bodies. This order was to take effect at the beginning of the school year on September 12, 1974. Students and parents had less than 90 days from the date of the ruling to prepare. It was very hot in Boston that summer, and it seldom rained. 
The power goes out sometime before dawn, and everyone at Commonwealth wakes to swelter. In the fantasy apartment, the window fans have quit in mid-rotation, and the fridge is pimpled with sweat. Mary Pat sticks her head in on jewels, finds her daughter on top of her sheets, eyes clenched, mouth half open, huffing thin breaths into a damp pillow. Mary Pat moves on down the hall into the kitchen and lights her first cigarette of the day. She stares out the window over the sink and can smell the heat rising off the brick in the window casing. She realizes she can't make coffee only when she tries to make it. She'd brew some on the stovetop. The oven runs on gas. But the gas company grew sick of excuses and killed their service last week. To get the family out of arrears, Mary Pat has picked up two shifts at the shoe warehouse where she has her second job. But she still has three more shifts and a trip to the billing office before she can boil water or roast a chicken again. She carries the trash can into the living room and sweeps the beer cans into it, empties the ashtrays from the coffee table and the side table, and one she found on top of the TV. It's there she catches her reflection in the tube and sees a creature she can't reconcile with the image she's clung to in her mind, an image that bears little resemblance to the sweaty lump of matted hair and droopy chin dressed in a tank top and shorts. Even in the flat gray of the picture tube, she can make out the blue veins in her outer thighs, which somehow don't seem possible. Not yet. Not yet. She's only 42, which, okay, when she was 12, seemed like one foot over the threshold into God's waiting room. But now living it is an age that makes her feel no different than she always has. She's 12. She's 21. She's 33. She's all the ages at the same time. But she isn't aging. Not in her heart. Not in her mind's eye. She's peering at her face in the TV, wiping at the damp strands of hair on her forehead, when the doorbell rings. After a series of home invasions two years back in the summer of 72, the housing authority sprang for peepholes in the doors. Mary Pat looks through hers now to see Brian Shea, in the mint green corridor, his arms full of sticks. Like most of the people who work for Marty Butler, Brian dresses neater than a deacon. Hello and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. How are you? Okay. Now, it's been written about your work that you're, quote, a philosopher of the human animal with evocative explorations of the essential flaws and personal corruptions that defeat us, and an adventure into the darker side of life. What are your thoughts about that characterization, and especially regarding small mercies? No, I'm not sure I even understand the characterization, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I feel I'm probably attracted to, I do tragedy well, I think, even though in my own life I tend to be far lighter and far more comic. Um, for whatever reason, when I write, I tend to um, uh, do best when I sort of excavate the darkness in the human condition. Mm. That's, that's the best I can come up with. Okay. And what would you hope to convey with Small Mercies to audiences in general, on the one hand, and to the Boston communities? Oh, the first rule I was ever taught when I was 16 as a writer is a writer never explains. <laughs> so I would hope people would read the book to get whatever I need to convey. And I wanted to ask you on another note, are you involved in the writer's strike? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Could you say a little about uh, that? Well, I, I think, you know, there's two sides to every story, and one of these sides is greed. And it's... Um, I think it's unconscionable what the studios are willing to put um, very, you know, earnest and talented and needy writers through. I mean, writers, I'm not talking about me. I'm not affected by this. Um, I'm well paid. But this is all about reducing any sort of fiscal responsibility to 
rank-and-file writers to writers who actually need to put, put food on their tables. Um, and, it's, and it's nickels and dimes to these studios, mm. and they're ruining lives over it. Yeah. So I'm not okay with it. And what was it about the 1974 school busing crisis in Boston that inspired you to embark on this novel? Um, well, it was it was an event that uh, transformed the city, transformed all the neighborhoods. I was the next neighborhood over. Um, it it was an extremely ugly and and violent summer, and and continued into the fall, into the winter, into 1975, into 1976. Um, and I was a child, so I had a front row seat for it, mm. and and it was something that took me many years to make sense of. Well, did writing the novel help in any way bring that into a perspective for you? Yes, yes, exactly. I think it, it, it sort of purged uh, a lot of undefinable anger that was inside of me. It gave definition to it. I could finally understand it. Um, and what was you know, a type of a type of rage inside of me that was very much connected to at nine years old seeing what seemed like perfectly reasonable adults throw rocks at buses that had children inside of them. And do you think that situation has improved in any way since then, to any great degree? Um, I mean, nobody's throwing rocks at buses, but beyond <laughs> that. Um, no, I don't. I think racism is is the original sin of this country. I think it still dominates. I think I think racism is, um, you know, I think it's a virus and it's affected a large portion of our population. And in terms of your novels that have been turned into films, how would you compare? that page-to-screen adaptation of, say, Clint Eastwood's approach to Mystic River and Scorsese's screen conceptualization of Shutter Island. Well, that's exactly how I look at it. You know, the book is mine. Mystic River by Dennis Lehane is mine, that book. Um, Mystic River, the film, is Clint Eastwood's and, and Brian Helgeland's, the screenwriter, and Sean uh, Penn, the actor, you know, to, um, uh, Tim Robbins, uh, it's their interpretation of the material. It's a different animal. It's a very, it's a very cool and wonderful animal. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the same thing. The book is the book. The movie is the movie. They're they're absolutely two different um, things. That's the way I look at it. So you wouldn't say there's any difference in the approach of the two directors to your material in general? Oh, yeah. oh no, there's totally different. Clint Eastwood yeah. and Martin Scorsese are completely different directors. Completely. So, uh, Clint is very much a traditionalist. He's in the old kind of Howard Hawks, Don Siegel school, um, and his, you know, his film was a very literal interpretation. Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island is is as much a tribute to the movies as it is to, uh, you know, the gothic underpinnings of the story. He got that I was doing a riff on 1950s paranoia movies. And so he shot the movie. It looks very much like a movie. It doesn't look like real life. Yeah. And what are your thoughts that you've said regarding your book, that it's uh, things that have been, that you've been carrying inside you about race and class since childhood? What about that? I'm sorry. Oh, well, what are your thoughts about that? You've said that it's about what you've been carrying inside you about race and class and, and class, yeah, especially because real... yeah, you haven't said anything about the class uh, nature of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a book about, uh, you know, it's a fury against race. I mean, it's the the woman, the main character, Mary Pat Fennessy, um, has a lot of admirable qualities, but she's also... Um, left behind a legacy of hate in her life that at the beginning of the book she doesn't understand. She doesn't think she's a racist. Or she doesn't think she's as racist as the people around her. And and the book is a journey through which she understands not only that she's a racist, but that she has passed that on as a destructive legacy to 
house down to basically find out what happened to her daughter. And that's a, that's a heroic journey. But the other journey, the emotional journey, is not heroic at all. It's about her finally coming to terms with uh, this poison inside of her. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dennis Lehane, for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. And Small Mercies is published by HarperCollins. And next up on the show, in the Arts Express screening room, same propaganda, different day, the case of Red Dawn, or rather, more than one of them, delving into proxy war, nuclear proliferation, Western superiority rhetoric, and, quote, to subscribe to Red Dawn's brand of patriotism is to mutilate the soul. Oh, who knows what nightmares we have created. After decades of animosity and an uneasy alliance throughout World War II, mid-century hostilities started brewing once again between the United States and the Soviet Union. From all this tension and terror sprung the Cold War, a time of McCarthyism, proxy wars, nuclear proliferation, and a whole heap of propaganda. Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, the apostles of the communist gospel. America went double-barreled, these colors don't run red, white, and blue in the face. But they wanna, they wanna overthrow all governments even the American government, by force and violence. Then we'll overthrow it by force and violence. We'll have our way if it means bloodshed and terror. Subtle. Some lent into Western superiority rhetoric, others satirized it, and a few opted to punch communism right in its pinko face. Enter 1984's Red Dawn, a film that poses the question, what if centuries of intercontinental friction devolved into a schoolyard brawl between the cast of Dirty Dancing and some sentient bottles of vodka? As Soviet and Latin American forces stage a full-scale invasion of the continental US, a band of Colorado teens take up arms against their foreign aggressors. Standing tall in the wake of World War III, these Wolverines fight to take back what's theirs. Divorced from its cultural context and ideological outlook, Red Dawn is a serviceable, albeit unremarkable, dose of 1980s run-and-gun posturing. The action is appreciably unstylish, eschewing the high-camp cartoonishness of its contemporaries for some lean, mean insurgency. In a way that's at once gallingly self-serious for something so mawkish, but refreshingly grounded given the severity of its stakes. The performances are largely meat-for-the-grinder shadow puppets, with a few standout exceptions that elevate the utilitarian writing to something a lot more human and humane. One thing is for sure now, no one can ever go home again. Patrick Swayze is magnetic as a young man forced to grow up quickly and take the reins as master tactician and tough love authority figure, Harry Dean Stanton makes a meal out of a few minutes of screen time, Ron O'Neill lends genuine pathos and emotional latitude to what could quite easily have become a faceless secondary villain, and then there's the MVP. Powers Booth. This man makes an exposition dump sing like the whistling whir of a spiralling bullet, and he's capable of saying more with a thousand-yard stare than his more youthful castmates managed to convey with 90 minutes of fervent battle cries. You got a family? I don't know. That about sums up Red Dawn on a technical and artistic level. It's a C+, plenty enjoyable, but aged work, from an era that's now synonymous with dumb carnage and Reaganomics. 
What's far more interesting is where Red Dawn opts to hunker down philosophically. To that end, it is vital that we understand the authorial intent. So we're gonna have to talk about co-writer and director John Milius. Go ahead, make my day. I'm John Milius, I'm a filmmaker, a historian and a storyteller. An instrumental figure in crafting some of the greatest films ever made, an RA board member and self-described right-wing extremist, those are his words, not mine. Milius is the kind of kook you can imagine brandishing a loaded Colt 45 to quaking interviewers or demanding to be paid in a mixture of cash and guns. Both of which are things he absolutely did. He doesn't write for pussies and he doesn't write for women. He writes for men, because he's a man. When I say John Milius's work skews libertarian or right, that's not up for debate, nor am I using it to say he isn't a good writer, because quite a lot of the time he was a great writer. What's not so clear is whether or not Red Dawn could or should be classed as propaganda, a goal-driven piece of politicised messaging that serves to sway public sentiment towards the author's beliefs. He's a cartoon when it comes to politics. There's no progress in his thinking, it's just the right wing. Uh... I'm not going to get too into the weeds on the meaning of cinematic propaganda here, because Folding Ideas has already produced the definitive work on that very subject, but I'll echo Dan's findings and say that when we call a film propaganda, it's typically a label intended to denigrate and lessen its intellectual and artistic value writing off the end result as an attempt to perpetuate dubiously reasoned, biased, or outright false attitudes and ideas. With that definition in mind, Red Dawn appears to be a cut-and-dry case of capital P propaganda. So then, what is this picture that had landslide Reagan and his erstwhile sabre-rattler Alexander Haig cheering lustily in their seats? Well, I'll tell you, it's called Red Dawn, and it's a piece of right-wing jingoism. It's an invasion we're told was only able to occur because of our liberal softness towards the Eastern Bloc and all the illegal immigrants sneaking up through Mexico to pillage our fertile lands. Soviet officials have gone on the offensive against what they see as an American 35mm weapon. Its attempts to frame itself as an alternative history work based on political science and think tank speculation is essentially just a 25 second barrage of yellow text declaring Europe are cowards, Russia gave them a bully ramming, and NATO is stupid. We're not even five minutes into the movie when Russian soldiers start falling from the sky and carry out the methodically sound art of war strategy of, uh, immediately start shooting children, then burst whatever buildings look like they could use an RPG enema. This montage of skirmishes is rarely more than an us-versus-them highlight reel. In short, Milius's version of the Soviet forces is a communazi cartoon. I surrender! Not so fast! There's so much time spent on the visceral hatred of the other that the film literally runs out of time. This leaves Red Dawn with one of the most tossed-off, rushed endings of its era. A flash-forward to a static monument, and a few sparse words to say, um, at some point the war ended, and I guess we won. Hooray! There is no geopolitical legwork, no attempt to engage in reasoned or rational hypotheticals. It's just the dumbest version of a genuinely captivating concept. I think this is really a program designed for high school students, not very bright high school students. And to me, that gulf between ideological intent and the imperfect end product makes this a far more interesting proposition than its reputation may suggest. Red Dawn often works better as a condemnation of its core beliefs than as the isolationist soapbox it intended to be. To subscribe to Red Dawn's brand of patriotism is to fail your children, mutilate your soul, kill your heart, and desecrate every semblance of truth, honour, and the American way in a vain attempt to preserve it. All that hate's gonna burn you up, kid. It keeps me warm. 
If someone says this is fireproof and in trying to demonstrate that sets the dang thing ablaze, that failure to illustrate their point convincingly becomes an arresting argument to the contrary. A counter-narrative far more provocative and powerful than that original, spurious declaration. The final product functions as a dour reflection of the Vietnam War, albeit with the roles reversed. An American insurgency facing a communist incursion. Going back even further, a well-armed culturally alien force from across the sea, staging an invasion to indoctrinate or exterminate the indigenous population and take the land for their own. So what the Americans did to the people of the First Nations, and what the British did to just about everybody. Avenge me! Avenge me! For all John Milius's nationalistic bluster, he accidentally ended up making a profoundly damning indictment of his cannibalistic dogmatism. A propaganda machine running in reverse, fueled by burning American flags, and oiled with the blood of those who believe. None of which can be said of the 2012 remake, which swaps out the antagonistic nation and trades Roadhouse and Platoon with Thor and that dude from the Turner and Hooch remake you didn't know existed until I just mentioned it. The plot of Red Dawn 2012 is nearly identical to the original, as is its fundamentally confused nationalism, save for a few cosmetic differences and one major change that was immediately changed again. It'd be more accurate to call Red Dawn 2012 Red Dawn 2009, given that it was completed and then shelved for almost three years. You see, at this time, MGM had some real problems on its plate. The first was a cataclysmic financial reckoning that nearly sank the whole studio. Then there's the matter of this remake's chosen antagonist. Instead of Mother Russia and her sycophantic pups, this time around the producers made China the overseas aggressors on all the apple pies. A move that riled up the criticism averse Chinese government to such an extent that they weaponized their state-run news outlets against both the project and Western cinema as a whole thus turning MGM into a cash-strapped studio that had just alienated nearly one and a half billion potential cinema patrons and a share of the global box office that rivals the United States. So, in the spirit of Red Dawn and its proud, steadfast resolve in the face of foreign interference or stifled freedom of liberty, the studio did the only thing it could. We inherited our freedom. Now it's up to all of us to fight for it. They buckled immediately, gave in to 100% of the Chinese government's demands, and reshot, digitally altered, and edited the film to better appeal to those it had once dubbed totalitarian warmongering invaders. All of which makes it impossible to watch this manipulated, compromised hogwash without giggling at the hypocritical irony of every gun-toting second of it. I want you to go to war. Stop this or die trying. So, who did they change the villains to? Well, North Korea, of course. Because they'd already shot the damn thing with an army of Asian extras, and I guess they didn't see anything remotely wrong-headed about slapping North Korean decals over Chinese insignias and using CGI to digitally make the actors and uniforms less Chinese which is exactly as gross as it sounds. That's not a plan, that sandwich without the bread. What about the actual film, though? Eh. You two are the wrong family. It's not as bad as its critical crucifixion would have you believe, but it still isn't good. The amount of practically executed pyrotechnics is commendable, a couple of the set pieces are relatively effective, and an up-and-coming Chris Hemsworth does way more than he needs to with such an infantile screenplay. All told though, it's still just a one-dimensional power fantasy for preppers. You got him. 
But what about that Red Dawn propaganda angle? Wolverine! Well, the North Korean Aji prop you hear in the movie, it's all kinda true. Victims of an American culture in which greed, irresponsibility, and fraud were openly encouraged. Victims of a corrupt government in bed with the tyrants of Wall Street. Then there's the overlooked detail that North Korea's methods and movements here aren't much different from the shock and awe followed by hearts and minds manoeuvres made by America in Iraq and Afghanistan, which would make these spry high school heroes the Taliban, I guess? It's the Wolverine! Well, that's certainly a choice someone made. Sweet land of liberty, My main issue with Red Dawn, both the original and remake, is that by falling back on unquestioning, stand your ground rhetoric, they never actually capitalise on their conceit. By bumbling through some saber-rattling propaganda, the inability to coherently deliver that bogus message becomes the message itself. He said, quote, my fantasy, <laughs> insane, was to, uh, to, to fly across treetops and drop fire on children. With a decent budget, an authorial ally, and an entire continent as its battleground, Red Dawn still can't say America is for Americans with a straight face. And with all the speculation and diverse thinking that provokes, Red Dawn's mistakes paint a far more compelling picture than the artists ever intended. A hammer and sickle for our producers Jennifer C, Claire M D, Beckio, Hales and Rue, Historically Dumb, Scared Confusion, Jake R, and Nicholas Le Revere, and Karl Marx's beard for all these amazing folks who support us. As always, thank you. Until next time, this is Inframe Out. And thank you, Inframe Out, for that daring presentation. Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. on the global television beat with series TV after the deluge, the vast wasteland. Arts Express Paris correspondent Bro investigates at this year's series mania in Lille, France, the world's largest television festival, bank failures, budgets, and the new conservatism in programming. Or to quote Jack Warner back in 1947, we're not in the news business. We're not trying to do truth to power. I will never again make a film about the common man. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Series TV After the Deluge, The Vaster Wasteland. What is the state of streaming TV and serial series in the wake of last year's Netflix devaluation and this year's recent bank crisis? That was a question that was not very much on the table or addressed specifically at Lille in northern France at this year's series Mania, perhaps the world's largest television festival, which did boast 55 series from 24 countries, including for the first time series from Iran, The Actor, and a Pakistani-Indian co-production, Limbo Land. The question of how to survive in an industry in retreat, however, did surface in disguised form repeatedly. This global series, Cornucopia and Abundance, is belied by the fact that financing is shrinking in the wake of another bank collapse, 
this time most notably of Silicon Valley Bank, which made loans to digital companies of which streaming is now a part, including bankrolling the streaming service Roku, as well as the collapse on the international level of Credit Suisse. This is not to mention another U.S. mid-level bank failure, that of First Republic, equally crucial to the digital economy on both coasts, which lost $102 billion in deposits in the first quarter of 2023 and needed a $30 billion bailout just to stay alive. The net effect of a run on mid-level banks in the U.S. was that money fled to the supposedly safer larger banks, in particular J.P. Morgan, whose profits jumped 52% in the first quarter of 2023, and Citibank. These banks, which will be much more conservative financiers of a largely debt-ridden industry, which has yet to turn a profit. Warner Brothers, operator of HBO Max, which recently became just Max, is $50 billion in debt, having lost $217 million in the first quarter, claiming that loss a victory since it was far less than the previous quarter, while Disney Plus is hoping to be profitable by 2024. So there will be less money to go around, and the money that is available will be coming from more conservative sources, which will want more guarantees that the money invested will be profitable. All this in the wake of last year's market devaluation of Netflix, based on subscribers declining for one quarter, and a new emphasis on overall company profitability rather than on number of new subscribers as the market becomes more suspicious of the streaming house of cards. The retrenchment was an unacknowledged topic, with everyone realizing that budgets will be leaner and fewer series will be commissioned. But there is also in the industry's new conservatism in programming, which likely dates from Reed Hastings, at that time the head of the most influential streamer Netflix, 2019 comment about not opposing Saudi cuts in his company's documentary because we're not in the news business. We're not trying to do truth to power. We're trying to entertain. This purposeful abnegation of any larger social role for the streaming industry was possibly akin to a statement attributed to Jack Warner in 1947 in the wake of a strike against his studio that, I will never again make a film about the common man. The renouncement of social content was touched upon by series mania director Lawrence Hirschberg, who candidly declared that before the festival, that today Netflix is more conservative than TF1, a commercial French on-air station, the equivalent in the U.S. perhaps to CBS. Well, during the festival, HBO showrunner Lisa Joy, when asked if today HBO would have bankrolled her series Westworld, which the pay-per-view service canceled after its fourth season, simply shrugged her shoulders and said she was grateful that the series made it on the air at all. The result of this retrenchment which is already apparent, is a cutting back not only on the number of series and or on the budgets of commission series, but also the failure of some of the streaming services, or if they survive, their adoption of cheaper series, usually meaning unscripted or reality series, which means a general diminution in quality. Last year, the French streamer Salto, which aggregated series from French public and private stations, collapsed, while the merger of Warner Brothers and the documentary service Discovery meant that the resulting streamer, now simply titled Max, having shed the name of HBO, the quality series producer in the Warner's stable, is now about saturation, but of lower-level, cheaper reality series from the Discovery label, with the emphasis on more bottom-feeder series such as Gold Rush, Deadliest Catch, and Moonshiners. The end of peak TV. This new state of affairs, the online service Slate described as no longer peak TV, but rather trough or bottom-of-the-barrel TV. Two years ago, 2021, was probably the height of series abundance, with 559 series produced in the U.S. By contrast, in the current climate, Sky, one of the leaders in European series, has invested in 200 series, but only about 10% of them are scripted. All over the world, led by the U.S. consumers, now labeled cord cutters, they're canceling expensive cable services for cheaper streamers. The problem for the streamers is that because of inflation and a global attack on working class salaries in the wake of new austerity measures, such as the French raising of the pension age from 62 to 64, and global central banks raising of interest rates, which makes borrowing prohibitive, cord cutters are subscribing to fewer streaming services. 
All this, as Hirschberg says, as streaming services across the globe are growing and have now reached, by her count, 700, which means the competition for viewers is increasing. What this new penny-pinching has prompted is a return by the streaming industry to many of the practices of the older era of network TV, practices which for a decade or so the streamers had claimed had been surpassed in a frenzy of creative activity. Series are being canceled sooner, with some now canceled in production before they reach the air. This practice is more in line with the usual mid-season casualty list of network TV, which used to announce after Christmas a fresh second season, having replaced fall series that were duds and ratings failures with spring series, many of which a few months later shared the same fate. Budgets for series are being reduced, and canny showrunners are already adapting to the new austerity. One of the best series in the festival was Nordland 99 from Danish Public Television. The showrunner, Kasper Moller Rask, has fashioned a low-budget rural series with a cast of largely newcomers filmed cheaply in the Danish countryside, whose dark forests are alive with the eerie intonations of David Lynch's Twin Peaks, while also echoing the thematics of Lynch's series as here three teens search for their missing friend and discover the evil of an adult world which itself has been left for dead by the systemic brutality of what is now in the West authoritarian neoliberalism. This new frugality contrasts sharply with the earlier era, and by earlier I mean just a few years ago, when, led by Netflix, money flowed freely as the streamer's priority was simply putting as much content on their platforms as possible. Another accommodation to network TV to that era is the adoption of the dreaded strategy of advertising, which Netflix previously was famous for shunning, instead claiming it was viewer-sponsored, with its revenue coming exclusively from subscriptions. All streamers now, though, have instituted two-tiered pricing, with a lower price that includes advertising and a higher price that excludes it. Advertising, of course, also opens the door to sponsors having a say in content, in the atmosphere that the program surrounding their product sets up. Yet another infringement on creativity that will and is resulting in a blanding of series content. This new austerity, control, and limiting of the range of content is presented as freedom of choice for the consumer. There is as well more oversight with, again, Netflix functioning more like the TV networks of old, which were famous for their interference in programming as every producer lived in fear of the network executive's visit to the set. The days of commissioning a series and then leaving it be until it reached the air are over. Along with this has come for TV showrunners, those responsible for the creation and vision of the series, less job security. Unlike the Hollywood studios of old, whose system of control was futile and absolute, but which still guaranteed a regular paycheck, most showrunners and writers now work show to show. Netflix has signed the German creators of an earlier hit, Dark, Baron Bo Odar and Janty Fries, and the Spanish creator Alex Pena on the strength of Money Heist, but those signings are unlikely to be repeated, as the next high-budget series by the Dark Team 1899 was canceled after one season, and the subsequent Alex Pena series have been disappointments, such that his next series is a return to his hit franchise with a prequel about the most charismatic of the Money Heist thieves titled simply Berlin. The trace of the older writer-centered practice could still be observed in HBO head Casey Bloy's claim at the conference that he had scheduled The Last of Us, his latest HBO hit and one of the best shows of the season, simply because he wanted to be in business with Craig Mazin after his series Chernobyl, and that after a Mar of Easttown, he was interested in any series Kate Winslet might want to do. To appeal to lenders wanting to be assured that their money will prosper, the buzzword in streaming is now IP, intellectual property, which does not mean more thoughtful, challenging work, but rather the opposite. IP denotes utilization of a previously successful property. In the Hollywood studio sense, this could mean that the series already has an audience in another medium. Thus, the recent television remakes of Great Expectations and Tom Jones and Drops of God, an international co-production from a popular Japanese manga about competition between wine growers in France and Japan. 
More often, though, IP means the extension of one hit series into a franchise, the business term, or universe, its creative equivalent. With the success of the very conservative Yellowstone, a kind of modern-day cross between Bonanza and Dynasty, about a rancher and his family holding onto their land, aided by the fading star quality of Kevin Costner, Paramount Plus, with its older audience drawn from its network profile on its subsidiary CBS, has now gone back in time and created two copycat series about the origin of the dynasty titled 1883 and 1923. This trend is further magnified by the rating success of the Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon, which despite a lackluster final season for the origin series, has proven to be an enormous hit, and which has prompted the development of six more GOT series. You can never have too much of a good thing, even if the good thing ends by exhausting itself. Europe is less genre-oriented and more attuned to individual productions, so the European way of coping with U.S. IP production and generally shrinking budgets is a new emphasis on copros, the European buzzword most heard at the conference. The showcase series for this mode was The Swarm, a co-production featuring public stations in France, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, and the private streamers Viaplay from Scandinavia and Hulu Japan. The point of the series about the ocean being abused by all manner of corporate dumping and overfishing and now fighting back and wreaking its revenge is a strong one, but the series is weakened by its attempt to provide thinly sketched personal peccadilloes for its array of young scientists scattered across the globe. Is she sleeping with him? Will they get back together? and would have been stronger if it had, on the model of the film Outbreak, simply stuck to its main theme. It must be noted, though, that co-pros, which now include U.S. streamers teaming up with Euro public television networks and private companies, have produced some solid results. This year's The Good Mothers, a British-Italian indie production for Hulu and Disney+, Plus, won the inaugural Berlin Biennale Best Series. The on-point Utterly accurate detailing of the feudal misogyny of the clannish Nargenta as a way of maintaining its power through secrecy makes this the best series of the year so far, with Disney Plus and FX now also developing Deepti Kapoor's Age of Vice about the endemic corruption in India in the 2000s and the movement of gangsters into the government as that country made a transition from socialism to capitalism. Nevertheless, the general quality of the streamer's stables is declining. Once upon a time, television was referred to as the vast wasteland, with that phrase then superseded by the labeling of the streaming era as a new golden age, hearkening back to the quality, often socially inflected, anthology dramas of television's early years. Today's budget-conscious streamers, in an era of increasing competition, each stressed at the conference their desire to be all things to all audiences, a one-stop shop for entertainment, given that much of the audience can now only afford one stop. This Noah's Ark approach, comedy, drama, family, quality entertainment, all in the same bundle, stressed the element of abundance. But the truth is, there is now mostly an abundance of shows without much merit, so that to find quality series, it's now necessary to scour all the streamers to find the one or two relevant series on each. Paramount Plus, for example, a newcomer in European markets, in line with its old studio logo featuring a snow-capped peak, described its offerings as a mountain of entertainment, a popular array of content that presented a range of series with each being best in class. The streamer Sizzle Reel, a montage of its various offerings with the tagline, The Stars Are Streaming, belied these claims, stressing the almost comatose Cosner and Yellowstone, Sylvester Stallone and his beyond-cliched gangster series Tulsa, a coming extension of Dexter about a vengeful serial killer, and NCIS Sydney, the overseas expansion of that tired franchise. This is surely a mountain of something, but I'm not sure the correct name for it is entertainment. Netflix, meanwhile, described its collection of series equally as premium and commercial at the same time, though it was difficult to detect the premium element in its mostly standard generic offerings. The streamer also boasted ominously that we have become the biggest builder of cross-European culture in the EU, thus supplanting the range of public European stations in a mode of neoliberal entertainment that fashions a Euro-cultural soup. Thus, in this interpretation... European culture is now being systematized by the top four streaming services on the continent, Netflix, 
Amazon, Disney Plus, and Sky, which is majority held by the conservative American owner of NBC Universal and Peacock, Comcast. Striking against the empire. What once was what is to be done about this dominance is now more appropriately altered to can anything be done? There are three ways that both globally and locally the power of the streamers is being challenged. The first in Europe is still the possibility of government intervention to level the playing field. Though as in many forms of the digital economy, with the EU already currently behind in the race for artificial intelligence, as exemplified in chat GPT, this intervention often comes in the too little, too late variety. There's a European mandate that the American streamers' content must be at least 30% local. Despite, or perhaps to surmount this mandate, the streamers are pilfering the best European series talent, with Netflix, for example, recently having hired Eleonora Adriata, formerly the head of RAI, Italian Public Television's drama department, and with the producers of the French espionage series Bureau of Legends, which has now become a global franchise, currently working for Disney+. In France, though, Following the Chinese model, each co-pro with an American streamer now must have a delegated French producer. The idea here is that the producer then absorbs the American model and can still instill it into French production, the way the Chinese allowed foreign companies to set up in China that then absorbed their know-how. There is also some progress being made in the battle of creative producers to not cede the rights to their series in perpetuity for an often slightly increased upfront payment. This change is a factor of government negotiation and pressure, but also due to the fact that the streamers, and Netflix in particular, have now acquired so much content that they no longer have any need to build up their catalog, and so can, after a specified time, let the property circulate. With a decline in series quality, supposedly motivated by decreasing budgets, readying audiences to accept this degraded mode of production. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.